0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Chris Hughes. ReadEar.blogspot.com. Youth, a Narrative by Joseph Conrad. Part 2 They towed us back to the inner harbour and we became a fixture, a feature, an institution of the place. People pointed us out to visitors as, Thalia Bark, that's going to Bangkok has been here six months, put back three times. On holidays, the small boys pulling about in boats would hail, Judea, ahoy! And if a head showed above the rail, shouted, Where you bound to? Bangkok? And jeered. We were only three on board. The poor old skipper mooned in the cabin. Man undertook the cooking, and unexpectedly developed all a Frenchman's genius for preparing nice little messes. I looked languidly after the rigging. We became citizens of Falmouth. Every shopkeeper knew us. At the barber's or tobacconists. they asked familiarly, Do you think you'll ever get to Bangkok? Meanwhile, the owner, the underwriters, and the charterers squabbled amongst themselves in London, and our pay went on. Pass the bottle. It was horrid. Morally, it was worse than pumping for life. It seemed as though we'd been forgotten by the world, belonged to nobody, would get nowhere. It seemed that, as if bewitched, we would have to live for ever and ever in that inner harbour, a derision and a byword to generations of longshore loafers and dishonest boatmen. I obtained three months' pay and a five days' leave and made a rush for London. It took me a day to get there. And pretty well another to come back, but three months pay went all the same. I don't know what I did with it. I went to a music-hall, I believe, lunched, dined, and supped in a swell place in Regent Street, and was back in time, with nothing but a complete set of Byron's works and a new railway rug to show for three months work. The boatman who pulled me off to the ship said, Hello, I thought you'd left the old thing. She'll never get to Bangkok. That's all you know about it, I said scornfully. But I didn't like that prophecy at all. Suddenly a man, some kind of agent to somebody, appeared with full powers. He had grog blossoms all over his face, an indomitable energy, and was a jolly soul. We leaped into life again. A hulk came alongside, took our cargo, and then we went into dry-dock to get our copper stripped. No wonder she leaked. The poor thing, strained beyond endurance by the gale, had, as if in disgust, "'spat out all the oakum of her lower seams. "'She was recalked, now coppered, and made as tight as a bottle. "'We went back to the hulk and reshipped our cargo. "'Then, on a fine moonlit night, all the rats left the ship. "'We had been infested with them. "'They had destroyed our sails, consumed more stores than the crew, "'affably shared our beds and our dangers, "'and now, when the ship was made seaworthy, concluded to clear out.' I called man to enjoy the spectacle. Rat after rat appeared on our rail, took a last look over his shoulder, and leaped with a hollow thud into the empty hulk. We tried to count them, but soon lost the tail. Man said, "'Well, well, don't talk to me about the intelligence of rats. They ought to have left before, when we had that narrow squeak from foundering. There you have the proof of how silly is the superstition about them. They leave a good ship for an old rotten hulk, where there's nothing to eat, too, the fools.' I don't believe they know what's safe or what is good for them any more than you or I. And after some more talk, we agreed that the wisdom of rats had been grossly overrated, being in fact no greater than that of men. The story of the ship was known by this all up the channel from Land's End to the Forelands, and we could get no crew on the south coast. They sent us one all complete from Liverpool, and we left once more for Bangkok. We had fair breezes, smooth water right into the tropics, and the old Judea lumbered along in the sunshine. When she went eight knots, everything cracked aloft, and we tied our caps to our heads, but mostly she strolled on at the rate of three miles an hour. What could you expect? She was tired, that old ship. Her youth was where mine is, where yours is, you fellows who listen to this yarn, and what friend would throw your years and your weariness in your face? We didn't grumble at her. To us, aft at least, it seemed as though we had been born in her, reared in her, had lived in her for ages, had never known any other ship. I would just as soon have abused the old village church at home for not being a cathedral. And for me there was also my youth to make me patient. There was all the East before me, and all life, and the thought that I had been tried in that ship, and had come out pretty well.' and i thought of men of old who centuries ago went that road in ships that sailed no better to the land of palms and spices and yellow sands and of brown nations ruled by kings more cruel than nero the roman and more splendid than solomon the jew the old bark lumbered on heavy with her age and the burden of her cargo while i lived the life of youth in ignorance and hope she lumbered on through an interminable procession of days and the fresh gilding, flashed back at the setting sun, seemed to cry out over the darkening sea the words painted on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. Then we entered the Indian Ocean and steered northerly for Java Head. The winds were light. Weeks slipped by. She crawled on, do or die, and people at home began to think of posting us as overdue. One Saturday evening, I being off duty, the men asked me to give them an extra bucket of water or so, for washing clothes. As I did not wish to screw on the fresh water pump so late, I went forward whistling, and with a key in my hand to unlock the four-peak scuttle, intending to serve the water out of a spare tank we kept there. The smell down below was as unexpected as it was frightful. One would have thought thousands of paraffin lamps had been flaring and smoking in that hole for days. I was glad to get out. THE MAN WITH ME coughed AND SAID, FUNNY SMELL, SIR. I ANSWERED NEGLIGENTLY, IT'S GOOD FOR THE HEALTH, THEY SAY, AND WALKED aft. THE FIRST THING I DID WAS TO PUT MY HEAD DOWN THE SQUARE OF THE MIDSHIP VENTILATOR. AS I LIFTED THE LID, A VISIBLE BREATH, SOMETHING LIKE A THIN FOG, A PUFF OF FAINT HAZE, ROSE FROM THE OPENING. THE ASCENDING AIR WAS HOT, AND HAD A HEAVY, SOOTY, PARAFFINY SMELL. I GAVE ONE SNIFF, AND PUT DOWN THE LID GENTLY. IT WAS NO USE CHOKING MYSELF. The cargo was on fire. Next day she began to smoke in earnest. You see, it was to be expected, for though the coal was of a safe kind, that cargo had been so handled, so broken up with handling, that it looked more like smithy coal than anything else. Then it had been wetted more than once. It rained all the time we were taking it back from the hulk, and now with this long passage it got heated, and there was another case of spontaneous combustion captain called us into the cabin he had a chart spread on the table and looked unhappy he said the coast of west australia is near but i mean to proceed to our destination it is the hurricane month too but we will just keep her head for bangkok and fight the fire no more putting back anywhere if we all get roasted we will try first to stifle this here damn combustion by want of air we tried we battened down everything and still she smoked The smoke kept coming out through imperceptible crevices. It forced itself through bulkheads and covers. It oozed here and there and everywhere in slender threads, in an invisible film, in an incomprehensible manner. It made its way into the cabin, into the forecastle. It poisoned the sheltered places on the deck. It could be sniffed as high as the main yard. It was clear that if the smoke came out, the air came in. This was disheartening. This combustion refused to be stifled. We resolved to try water, and took the hatches off. Enormous volumes of smoke, whitish-yellowish-thick-greasy-misty choking, ascended as high as the trucks. All hands cleared out aft. Then the poisonous cloud blew away, and we went back to work in a smoke that was no thicker now than that of an ordinary factory chimney. We rigged the force pump, got the hose along, and by and by it burst. Well, it was as old as the ship. A prehistoric hose and past repair then we pumped with the feeble head pump drew water with buckets and in this way managed in time to pour lots of indian ocean into the main hatch the bright stream flashed in sunshine fell into a layer of white crawling smoke and vanished on the black surface of coal steam ascended mingling with the smoke we poured salt water as into a barrel without a bottom it was our fate to pump in that ship to pump out of her to pump into her AND AFTER KEEPING WATER OUT OF HER TO SAVE OURSELVES FROM BEING DROWNED, WE FRANTICALLY POURED WATER INTO HER TO SAVE OURSELVES FROM BEING BURNT. AND SHE CRAWLED ON, DO OR DIE IN THE SERENE WEATHER. THE SKY WAS A MIRACLE OF PURITY, A MIRACLE OF AZURE. THE SEA WAS POLISHED, WAS BLUE, WAS pellucid, WAS SPARKLING LIKE A PRECIOUS STONE, EXTENDING ON ALL SIDES, ALL AROUND TO THE HORIZON as if the whole terrestrial globe had been one jewel, one colossal sapphire, a single gem fashioned into a planet. And on the luster of the great calm waters, the Judea glided imperceptibly, enveloped in languid and unclean vapours, in a lazy cloud that drifted to leeward, light and slow, a pestiferous cloud, defiling the splendour of sea and sky all this time of course we saw no fire the cargo smouldered at the bottom somewhere once man as we were working side by side said to me with a queer smile now if she only would spring a tidy leak like that time when we first left the channel it would put a stopper on this fire wouldn't it i remarked irreverently do you remember the rats we fought the fire and sailed the ship too as carefully as though nothing had been the matter the steward cooked and attended on us Of the other twelve men, eight worked, while four rested. Everyone took his turn, captain included. There was equality, and if not exactly fraternity, then a deal of good feeling. Sometimes a man, as he dashed a bucketful of water down the hatchway, would yell out, Hurrah for Bangkok! And the rest laughed. But generally we were taciturn and serious, and thirsty. Oh, how thirsty! And we had to be careful with the water. Strict allowance. The ship smoked. The sun blazed. "'Pass the bottle. "'We tried everything. "'We even made an attempt to dig down to the fire. "'No good, of course. "'No man could remain more than a minute below. "'Man, who went first, fainted there, "'and the man who went to fetch him out did likewise. "'We lugged them out on deck. "'Then I leaped down to show how easily it could be done. "'They had learned wisdom by that time "'and contented themselves by fishing for me "'with a chain-hook tied to a broom-handle, I believe. "'I did not offer to go and fetch my shovel.' which was left down below. Things began to look bad. We put the longboat into the water. The second boat was ready to swing out. We had also another, a fourteen-foot thing, on Davit's aft, where it was quite safe. Then, behold, the smoke suddenly decreased. We redoubled our efforts to flood the bottom of the ship. In two days there was no smoke at all. Everybody was on the broad grin. This was on a Friday. On Saturday no work but sailing the ship, of course, was done. The men washed their clothes and their faces for the first time in a fortnight and had a special dinner given them. They spoke of spontaneous combustion with contempt and implied they were the boys to put out combustions. Somehow we all felt as though we each had inherited a large fortune. But a beastly smell of burning hung about the ship. Captain Beard had hollow eyes and sunken cheeks, I had never noticed so much before how twisted and bowed he was. He and man prowled soberly about hatches and ventilators, sniffing. It struck me suddenly poor man was a very, very old chap. As to me, I was as pleased and proud as though I had helped to win a great naval battle. Oh, youth! The night was fine. In the morning a homeward-bound ship passed us hull down, the first we'd seen for months, but we were nearing the land at last, Java Head being about 190 miles off and nearly due north. Next day it was my watch on deck from eight to twelve. At breakfast the captain observed, It's wonderful how that smell hangs about the cabin. About ten, the mate being on the poop, I stepped down on the main deck for a moment. The carpenter's bench stood abaft the mainmast. I leaned against it, sucking at my pipe, and the carpenter, a young chap, came to talk to me. He remarked, I think we've done very well, haven't we? And then I perceived with annoyance the fool was trying to tilt the bench. I said curtly, Don't, Chips! And immediately became aware of a queer sensation, of an absurd delusion. I seemed somehow to be in the air. I heard all round me like a pent-up breath released, as if a thousand giants simultaneously had said, Phew! and felt a dull concussion which made my ribs ache suddenly. No doubt about it. I was in the air, and my body was describing a short parabola. But short as it was, I had the time to think several thoughts in it, as far as I could remember, the following order. This can't be the carpenter. What is it? Some accident. Submarine volcano. Coals. Gas. By Jove, we're being blown up. Everybody's dead. I'm falling into the afterhatch. I see fire in it. The coal dust suspended in the air of the hold had glowed dull red at the moment of the explosion. In the twinkling of an eye, in an infinitesimal fraction of a second since the first tilt of the bench, I was sprawling full length on the cargo. I picked myself up and scrambled out. It was quick, like a rebound. The deck was a wilderness of smashed timber lying crosswise like trees in a wood after a hurricane. An immense curtain of soiled rags waved gently before me. It was the mainsail blown to strips— I thought the masts would be toppling over directly, and to get out of the way bolted on all fours towards the poop ladder. The first person I saw was man, with eyes like saucers, his mouth open, and the long white hair standing straight on end round his head like a silver halo. He was just about to go down, when the sight of the main deck stirring, heaving up, and changing into splinters before his eyes petrified him on the top step. I stared at him in unbelief, and he stared at me with a queer kind of shocked curiosity. I did not know that I had no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, that my young moustache was burnt off, that my face was black, one cheek laid open, my nose cut, and my chin bleeding. I had lost my cap, one of my slippers, and my shirt was torn to rags. Of all this I was not aware. I was amazed to see the ship still afloat, the poop-deck hole, and, most of all, to see anybody alive. Also, the peace of the sky and the serenity of the sea were distinctly surprising." I suppose I expected to see them convulsed with horror. Pass the bottle. There was a voice hailing the ship from somewhere. In the air, in the sky, I couldn't tell. Presently I saw the captain, and he was mad. He asked me eagerly, "'Where's the cabin table?' And to hear such a question was a frightful shock. I had just been blown up, you understand, and vibrated with that experience. I wasn't quite sure whether I was alive.' Man began to stamp with both feet and yelled at him, Good God, don't you see the deck's blown out of her? I found my voice and stammered out, as if conscious of some gross neglect of duty, I don't know where the cabin table is. It was like an absurd dream. Do you know what he wanted next? Well, he wanted to trim the yards. Very placidly and as if lost in thought, he insisted on having the foreyard squared. I don't know if there's anybody alive said Man, almost tearfully. "'Surely,' he said gently, "'there will be enough left to square the foreyard." The old man, it seems, was in his own berth winding up the chronometers when the shock sent him spinning. Immediately it occurred to him, as he said afterwards, that the ship had struck something, and he ran out into the cabin. There he saw the cabin table had vanished somewhere. The deck being blown up, it had fallen down into the lazarette, of course, Where we had our breakfast that morning, he saw only a great hole in the floor. This appeared to him so awfully mysterious, and impressed him so immensely, that what he saw and heard after he got on deck were mere trifles in comparison. And, Mark, he noticed directly the wheel deserted, and his bark off her course, and his only thought was to get that miserable, stripped, undecked, smouldering shell of a ship back again, with her head pointing at her port of destination, Bangkok, That's what he was after. I tell you, this quiet, bowed, bandy-legged, almost deformed little man was immense in the singleness of his idea and his placid ignorance of our agitation. He motioned us forward with a commanding gesture and went to take the wheel himself. Yes, that was the first thing he did. Trim the yards of that wreck. No one was killed or even disabled, but everyone was more or less hurt. You should have seen them. Some were in rags, with black faces like coal-heavers, like sweeps, and had bullet heads that seemed closely cropped, but were in fact singed to the skin. Others of the watch below, awakened by being shot out of their collapsing bunks, shivered incessantly, and kept on groaning, even as we went about our work. But they all worked. That crew of Liverpool hard cases had in them the right stuff. It's my experience they always have. It is the sea that gives it, the vastness, the loneliness surrounding their dark, stolid souls. Ah! Well, we stumbled, we crept, we fell, we barked our shins on the wreckage, we hauled. The masts stood, but we did not know how much they might be charred down below. It was nearly calm, but a long swell ran from the west and made her roll. They might go at any moment. We looked at them with apprehension. One could not foresee which way they would fall. Then we retreated aft and looked about us. The deck was a tangle of planks on edge, of planks on end, of splinters, of ruined woodwork. The masts rose from that chaos like big trees above a matted undergrowth. The interstices of that mass of wreckage were full of something whitish, sluggish, stirring, of something that was like a greasy fog. The smoke of the invisible fire was coming up again, was trailing like a poisonous thick mist in some valley choked with dead wood already lazy wisps were beginning to curl upwards amongst the mass of splinters here and there a piece of timber struck upright resembled a post half of a fife rail had been shot through the foresail and the sky made a patch of glorious blue in the ignobly soiled canvas a portion of several boards holding together had fallen across the rail and one end protruded overboard like a gangway leading upon nothing like a gangway leading over the deep sea leading to death "'as if inviting us to walk the plank at once "'and be done with our ridiculous troubles. "'And still the air, the sky, "'a ghost, something invisible, was hailing the ship. "'Someone had the sense to look over, "'and there was the helmsman "'who had impulsively jumped overboard, "'anxious to come back. "'He yelled and swam lustily like a merman, "'keeping up with the ship. "'We threw him a rope, and presently he stood amongst us, "'streaming with water and very crestfallen. "'The captain had surrendered the wheel.' and apart, elbow on rail and chin on hand, gazed at the sea wistfully. We asked ourselves, what next? I thought now, this is something like, this is great. I wonder what will happen. Oh, youth! Suddenly man sighted a steamer far astern. Captain Beard said, we may do something with her yet. We hoisted two flags which said, in the international language of the sea, "'On fire, want immediate assistance.' The steamer grew bigger rapidly, and by and by spoke with two flags on her foremast, "'I am coming to your assistance.' In half an hour she was abreast, to windward, within hail, and rolling slightly with her engine stopped. We lost our composure, and yelled altogether with excitement, "'We've been blown up!' A man in a white helmet on the bridge cried, "'Yes, all right, all right!' and he nodded his head and smiled and made soothing motions with his hand as though at a lot of frightened children one of the boats dropped in the water and walked towards us upon the sea with her long oars four calashes pulled a swinging stroke this was my first sight of malay seamen i've known them since but what struck me then was their unconcern they came alongside and even the bowman standing up and holding to our main-chains with the boat-hook did not deign to lift his head for a glance I thought people who'd been blown up deserved more attention. A little man, dry like a chip and agile like a monkey, clambered up. It was the mate of the steamer. He gave one look and cried, "'Oh, boys, you better quit!' We were silent. He talked apart with the captain for a time, seemed to argue with him. Then they went away together to the steamer. When our skipper came back, we learned that the steamer was the Somerville— Captain Nash from West Australia to Singapore via Batavia with mails, and that the agreement was she would tow us to Anja or Batavia, if possible, where we could extinguish the fire by scuttling, and then proceed on our voyage to Bangkok. The old man seemed excited. We will do it yet, he said to man fiercely. He shook his fist at the sky. Nobody else said a word. At noon the steamer began to tow she went ahead, slim and high, and what was left of the Judea followed at the end of seventy fathom of tow-rope, followed her swiftly like a cloud of smoke with mastheads protruding above. We went aloft to furl the sails. We coughed on the yards and were careful about the bunts. Do you see the lot of us there, putting a neat furl on the sails of that ship doomed to arrive nowhere? There was not a man who didn't think that at any moment the mast would topple over. From aloft we could not see the ship for smoke and they worked carefully, passing the gaskets with even turns. Harbour furl! Aloft there!' called man from below. "'You understand this. "'I don't think one of those chaps expected to get down in the usual way. "'When we did, I heard them saying to each other, "'Well, I thought we would come down overboard, in a lump, sticks and all. "'Blame me if I didn't. "'That's what I was thinking myself,' would answer wearily another battered and bandaged scarecrow. "'And, mind, these were men without the drilled-in habit of obedience.' To an onlooker, there would be a lot of profane scallywags without a redeeming point. What made them do it? What made them obey me when I, thinking consciously how fine it was, made them drop the bunt of the foresail twice to try and do it better? What? They had no professional reputation, no examples, no praise. It wasn't a sense of duty. They all knew well enough how to shirk and laze and dodge, when they had a mind to it, and mostly they had. Was it the two pounds ten a month that sent them there? They didn't think their pay half good enough. No, it was something in them, something inborn and subtle and everlasting. I don't say positively that the crew of a French or German merchantman wouldn't have done it, but I doubt whether it would have been done in the same way. There was a completeness in it, something solid like a principle, and masterful like an instinct, a disclosure of something secret, of that hidden something, that gift of good or evil that makes racial difference, that shapes the fate of nations.' End of part two.